Hello, listeners. This is Mike from the future, long after this episode was recorded back in October. I just want to bring up the article that Simon Fleming and Rebecca Fisher have published in regards to sexual assault in surgery. If you haven't read it already, please go and do so. This is still, sadly, a tragic truth about the NHS workplace, and in actual fact, many workplaces for that matter. Like yourself and everyone here at Bombser, we find these types of actions and behaviours absolutely abhorrent. In this episode, I discuss some issues with diversity and sexual assault with Simon. We've kept the tone of the episode quite light, which matches the style of the podcast. However, if you find any of the topics discussed today distressing or hurtful, firstly, please feel free not to finish this episode. If you'd like to get in touch to discuss some of the issues with myself, my co-host Dr. Matt Barrett, or our diversity lead Dr. Sylvia Alekmans from BOMSA, then you can contact us at contact at bomsa.org.uk or reach us on our socials at bomsa underscore UK. Alternatively, you can find some more information on support on the NHS website or on victimsupport.org.uk. Albeit, I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy Simon's stories and that you consider some of the topics discussed in today's episode further. Enjoy. Welcome to OSNAP, the official podcast of BOMSA, the British Orthopaedic Medical Students Association. Join our hosts for inspiring stories and personal reflections straight from the mouths of orthopaedic surgeons and trainees. Get inspired and start your orthopaedic career with OSNAP. Your podcast for all things orthopaedics. Being a new dad is just like the most brutal on call, basically. What a weird question to ask. You know, it's like asking, why don't we just put holes in the bottom of all of our boats? You know, when I do my talks, I, I talk a lot about it, right? That my talks are never big jam which is you know fuck i'm good just ask me mm-hmm. um um primarily i talk about my failures because i'm super proud of of what i've achieved but 90% of what i do goes to hell <laughs> like like most of most of the stuff i've achieved is on the back of multiple cockups and arguments and failures and mistakes and all these people are like yeah i made a mistake once but now i'm king of the world you're like oh balls and just that's just fake news well luckily today we're going to talk about all of your successes and uh it can be a bit of a fig jam kind of podcast where we talk (laughs) about how great you are so welcome to another podcast of oh snap my guest today is an orthopedic registrar on the pot rotation in london he is a fellow BARTS graduate where he did his MBBS. He also uh, did a master's in surgical sciences at BARTS and is about to defend his PhD in surgical competency, also studied at BARTS. He just can't get away from it. Simon Fleming has over 60 publications, over 20 prizes and awards. He was listed as a team of, uh, sorry, shortlisted for team of the year in the Nursing Times, uh, Nursing Times Awards during the COVID-19 pandemic. He's won the Harold Ellis, sorry, the Harold Ellis Prize for International Journal of Surgery. Um, Prof. Harold Ellis was actually one of my uh, professors when I did my BSc at uh, King's Humble Brag over there. Uh, awesome, awesome man and teacher. 
uh, as well as being an orthopedic influencer on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, you name it. He's presented at countless of congresses and conferences, uh, recently presented at the BOA Congress. He sits on the executive board for the National Institute of Health Research. Mr. Fleming has also completed fellowships in Ottawa, Canada. He continues to collaborate with his colleagues there um, and is a big fond member of, of the Canadian community. Uh, you've, you've recently jumped on a call with a TikTok star, haven't you? Um, the ophthalmologist. Dr. Glaucom Flecken. Do- yeah, that was... Do- Dr. Gla- That's not his real name, though, is it? No, his, his name is Will, and he's just the nicest human being you've ever met. And then he talks really candidly about, you know, that time he got cancer and then that time he got cancer a second time. And then that time he had a cardiac arrest and you're like, oh, yeah, OK. I, I, I had to delete uh, TikTok because it was distracting me too much from my final year studies. But uh, I, I, w- I was a follower of Dr. Glaukenflecken and uh, yeah, his, his content was very, very entertaining. Mr. Simon Fleming is also a past president of the British Orthopaedic Trainees Association. He has given a multitude of uh, talks about cultural change and had his, had his very own TED Talk uh, when TED Talk collaborated with the NHS. As mentioned, Simon is a strong advocate for diversity and quality in medicine, surgery and all things orthopaedics. He currently sits on the IODA committee, that's the International Orthopaedic Diversity Alliance. Uh, And he's also one of the first ever male members of the Medical Women's Federation. He is now also part of the senior oversight panel for BOMSA London, where he'll be working with our BOMSA colleagues uh, during this academic year to organise and deliver the next National Undergraduate Orthopaedic Symposium. Uh, Amongst his plethora of experiences, awards and achievements, uh, Simon has also just had his first child with his fiancée. So congratulations to you both. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to the podcast. How are we doing? How much sleep are you getting? Yeah, good. Uh, you know what? Um, being a new dad is just like the most brutal on call, basically, in that your baby screams or cries and it is just like a bleep in that you like sit bolt upright and then you very quickly do like a rapid assessment. And Is this the kind of thing where I actually need to do something or is this the kind of thing that I can just sort of ignore? Um, the lucky thing you have is that or at least the lucky thing I have is a is a an amazing partner who basically is like the consultant if I'm the registrar on call so she's like the senior decision maker so I'm like what's going on what are we doing where where and she's like it's okay it's fine or help <laughs> is it is it a bit of a s-bar handover babies uh crapped themselves all the way up to the nipples what do I do help help <laughs> it's 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 a little less uh full marks at Anoski and more Simon do this yeah okay cool uh which you know in in an emergency uh you need to be task focused and when when the baby is screaming and there's poop everywhere it's not time for like please would you mind kindly please you're like no just get a thing <laughs> okay get on with it get on with yeah, it. yeah exactly now that you are a father uh do you hold a special you know dad's license for your dad jokes or or has that always been a part of your repertoire? I was going to say, I, I I, always kind of felt like I told dad jokes before I was a dad. Maybe it was just like um, an aspirational dad joke. I, I, I think the whole point of dad jokes is when you can weaponize your pre-existing crappy humor to slightly embarrass your child. Now, of course, at the moment, my child is too young to be embarrassed. So I have to kind of store that all up so that they can be mortified in like 10 years time. Absolutely. But I'll still keep telling the crappy jokes. 
Can I can I share my favorite recent dad joke that I saw online with you? Go for it. If you if you don't laugh, I'll, I'll just edit that in. So the doctor diagnosed me with a rare form of amnesia that makes me deny the existence of all 80s bands. There is no cure. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is a really bad dad joke. And it's quite niche as well for like a very particular type of millennial that will be like, oh, yeah, no, that's nice. Cool. I get that. I, I, yeah. I, I grew up in a household with parents who listened to the, you know, bands from the 80s. So I, that really tickled me. God, I'm so old. <laughs> so you've, you know, you've done these all these amazing things and you are so far along in your journey. But I guess I, I want to take things back a little bit and ask you what actually inspired you to specialise in orthopaedics? Because I know you've got a very special story as to how you got here. Yeah, so so for me, I, I was at medical school and obviously I you start on your kind of clinical firms and... I'd already done some GP in first, second year, as you do at Barts in London. And I, my dad was a GP and I'd always kind of known it wasn't for me. I'd grown up with it. And, and part of it, again, is that kind of, you know, know, know thy, thyself. And I was just like, I don't think it's for me. And I, I think there's no shame in being like, I'm not interested in that stuff. I don't, I don't care about that stuff. It's not the kind of thing that's going to get me out of bed in the morning. It's not the kind of thing that's going to bring me joy. Um, so come middle of third year, I was like, right, I'm a surgeon, but what kind of surgeon am I? And so I was, I was hanging out in general surgery theatres a lot, again, as you kind of do in third year. And I, I wasn't really enjoying it. Like it wasn't for me. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm, maybe I've got this wrong. Um, and then I started fourth year and I was enjoying everything. Like I really enjoyed A&E because it's all very go, go, go. And I massively enjoyed Obstin Gyne. You know, C-sections are really satisfying operations to be a part of. Um, and then I was I was on one of my rotations and in the old Royal London, um, much like the new Royal London now, actually, to be fair, there was a, a lecture theatre under the hospital. And so one morning we were all there. I say we were all there. Let's be realistic, like a third of the year were there or whatever. And um, it kind of got to nine o'clock and there's no lecturer. And they got to about 9.15 and there's no lecturer. And we were like, sweet. Um, and we were trying to kind of text people to be like, you know, pub. Everyone's doing it. Yeah, pub, basically. Pub, pub. Everyone's, doing a bu- everyone's doing a bunk. Let's go to the union. It's going to be one of those days. Um, and we couldn't get through to anyone. Like there was no phone signal. It was really, really weird. And so we all kind of went upstairs. Um, and the old Royal London A&E used to be where the kind of dental institute hospital thing is now. So it literally, you kind of just went upstairs from the educational bit and you were in A&E. And, um, and that, the date of that day was, was 7-7. And so a major incident had been declared. London had been attacked. There had been bombings across London. And um, the year kind of, the, I say the year, the, the group of us that were there kind of split into thirds. So there were about a third who, who kind of went into shock. Um, there was a lot of like, just pale faces and like, oh my God, <laughs> like the, the horror of the humanity. Um, uh, about a third, not unreasonably, were like, I, I've got to go, I've got to go. They, you know, they wanted to check on friends and family. They wanted to just get out of the Royal London, um, all that sort of stuff. And then there was about a third of us who happened to know that medical students are actually part of major incident responses. 
So we kind of went up to one of the, uh, a man with a clipboard. I remember vividly, there's just a bloke with a clipboard. And we were like, we're medical students, how can we help? And he was like, cool. And he gave each one of us a little plastic bib and a little sticker that said something, I can't remember what. And we were, um, we were porters and we were phlebotomists. So we were doing cannulas and we were just taking people places. And it was kind of organized chaos, as you might imagine. That day, um, the Royal London saw over 260 patients between kind of nine and one in the, in the afternoon. UCH saw about 50, Great Ormond Street saw about 20. You know, the, it, the London was busy. And um, in the corner of recess, there was just this group of people in scrubs and they just had this air of calm about them, but not just calm. They were making decisions and they were doing stuff. And it just, as a kind of young medical student, it was one of those proper, like, uh, like you see in the movies where all the kind of sound goes away and, and, and you're like, who, who is that? And one of the A&E doctors was like, oh, that's the, those are the trauma surgeons. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, um, that's the vascular surgeons. Uh, those are actually plastics and general surgery there. And, um, and that bunch of people is, is the orthopods. And I was like, okay, I need to find out more about those people. And, and so I went out and I, I actively pursued those different specialties. I did my homework. I did some reading. I met with people. I asked questions. I, and I did, I did what I was always, I'd always been told to do by kind of junior doctors. I was like, look at the registrars, look at the consultants, look at what they do day to day, day in, day out. And very rapidly, I, I realized that I loved vascular trauma, but I didn't enjoy the elective stuff, the day to day. Same with plastics. Um, but I really enjoyed the hand surgery that the plastic surgeons did. And also, I didn't mind the stuff that I knew I wasn't really interested in and I kind of loved the trauma they did and the hand surgery and I was like and what I realized was when when you go to medical school and people say why well, do you want to be a doctor and everyone gives the same answer which is you know I like science and I like helping people and normally people try and tie it in with some kind of reflective story that their careers teachers help them write and, and the classic uh, my, my parents made me do it yeah right and and it's it's often like either a, a you know my my family are medical or my careers tutor said or you know I have, have have an experience of illness either personally or in my family there's normally some kind of personal connection what I realized in fourth year and that's when I realized it was I do want to help people but but the the denominator there the nuance is I like fixing things I like having a problem, whatever that is, and fixing it. Now, at the time, I wasn't thinking like, yeah, culture or yeah, medical education. I was thinking broken people, literally broken people. And for me, orthopedic operations, because we have x-ray and because of the type of pathology we see, people come in broken in some way, whether that's because they can't use their hand or because they can't work or because they can't walk and they leave, most of the time better less pain better function and I was like I get to fix people and it, and it was 7-7 seven, seven, it was that day that shaped my view of what I wanted out of life and out of a job I mean you know that's I did my master's on on 7-7 seven, seven. I, I it was one of those real days that shaped my world view in terms of 
healthcare and your ability to do stuff and help people in that way. But soft tissues aren't often the first thing that students think of when they think of orthopedics. You know, usually it's your hips, your knees, your shoulders. Um, so where did your inspiration for hand surgery begin and kind of who are your role models and mentors that spurred you along in that direction? So it's an interesting one. Again, I, I'd kind of tried to expose myself as much as I could in terms of reading and watching videos and just kind of sticking my head into theatres. Um, my first real exposure to pure hand surgery, because I saw bits of it and you do as you go through your training. So as a as a foundation doctor, I, you know, I saw a bit of hand surgery in one of my in some of my foundation jobs kind of through being an orthopedic F2 and seeing kind of trauma and carpal tunnels. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. And then as a core trainee, I did um, a plastic surgery job first. Um, and they do loads of hand surgery and they do the bony stuff and the squidgy stuff. And I was like, this makes sense to me. Like, it's really elegant. Your patient is awake. Um, you're sat down. Your lists, you actually have, you know, really busy lists because the operations are often, not always, but often slightly shorter. So you can do higher turnover. Your clinics, again, super busy, but you get to see loads of people. You know, I got to work with kind of hand therapists and I was like, this is a really multidisciplinary specialty. I like that. You're not kind of on your own. And then um, I kept kind of pursuing that while recognizing that I probably was going to need to be an orthopod before I could um, stop being pluripotent and, and kind of identify as a hand surgeon. But um, before I got my training number, I, I took a couple of years to do some other exciting stuff. And one of those things was six months at Chelsea and Westminster um, as, a, as a hand surgery CT3. And the hand surgeons there just blew my mind. So it is a orthoplastic, which means orthopedic surgeons and plastic surgeons, hand surgery unit. And I saw all the stuff they were doing electively and trauma surgery wise. I saw the, the life they had in terms of uh, work-life balance, family, extracurricular activities, what they earned, where, you know, how much they were able to do in terms of other things kind of academically and, and research and education-wise, all the rest. And I was like, this is the life. This is what I want to do. Um, and, and to be fair, there's probably other things that were a bit more subtle that influenced me. So, so that was the first ever job where I did clinics, like proper clinics, like a registrar in inverted commas and it was also the first job where anyone brought me a cup of coffee and it was that weird thing of like I feel like part of a team here I don't feel like just kind of um a part of a large workforce or a part of a department I feel part of a team you know someone brought me a cup of coffee and someone asked me how my weekend was and people were interested in my personal development and growth and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, not only is this an inspiring unit to be a part of, but I kind of, I like everything about this. And so that combined with all the other little bits and bobs I'd experienced up until that point really solidified for me that hand surgery was where I, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And, and again, part of it is a bit like when you're coming up with a differential diagnosis, I guess, ruling stuff out. So I did a bunch of hip replacements and was like, fine, but 
this, you know, I could, if I never did another hip replacement again, I'd be okay with that. And, and so you do certain things where you're like, oh, I don't enjoy this. This, this could be any job. Um, and, and it, it's a weird stage of your career where you become comfortable enough to say that just, you know, it's not for me. Um, I, just like, I also don't want to be a urologist and I don't want to be a radiologist and I don't want to be any, yeah. Cause it's not for me. I don't enjoy it. Um, and I was lucky enough because I had taken a slightly more circuitous route to getting onto my training program. I'd already done quite a bit of ortho and kind of worked out what I did and didn't enjoy so I did a year in Australia where I did quite a bit of hand surgery out of necessity because I was in a semi-rural hospital and there was no one else for hundreds of miles um and again I was like this is interesting because it forced me I had to I had to open a book and I had to read textbooks and stuff because you know the consultant there would be like well tomorrow we're doing this operation that I've not done in six years so you should probably read up on it and I'm like right then good um and, and, and it's that nice evolution that allows you to develop such that you can make quite informed choices about the life you want and what you want and what's important to you and what you care about. And it can be as silly as, you know, I, I played rugby for a very long time and used to do a bunch of other kind of, it makes you sound like a total wanker, but kind of contact combat sports. So I've got a terrible back. So the ability to operate sitting down is a, a really important choice uh, for me. Uh, you know, if I stand for prolonged periods of time, especially in LEDs, I'm ruined the next day because I've had lumbar decompression surgery. Um, and I, the ability to operate sitting down, you're like, this is great. Why won't you admit you hurt your back? Carla, come on. Back injuries are for 80-year-old guys named Norman who have pants up to here, nose hairs down to here, and who start every sentence with a very elegant... <laughs> Uh-huh. Oops. You dropped your badge. Huh. Your move there, <coughs> Norman. The fact that most hand surgery patients are, are awake, this is great. You can have music on and chat to the patients, but it also means you rarely have lots of inpatients because I can't be doing with ward rounds. So the ability to not have to do a ward round or have a very short ward round, I was like, that brings me joy you know and and even those things it is okay I think to to say that out loud and be like there are certain things that I want and there are certain things I don't like and I'm going to try and find a job that or a career that as best as possible ticks all those boxes and what's your favorite type of hand surgery like what's your favorite operation is it is it the joint fusions in the hand is it uh, you know I, I I hear you can even replace the the bones in in in, in the wrist. I, I, there's there's a lot of really cool uh, nerve transfers. Uh, sorry, not nerve. Uh, well, nerve transfers too, but uh, tendon transfers. What what is it that you know really turns you on and gets you excited in hand surgery, or or is it all of it? On a on a general day to day basis, if I'm honest, and I've done quite a bit of hand surgery, but I have a lot more to go, and it's why you know you have fellowships and all the rest. Um, I kind of like the bread and butter stuff. I really enjoy a carpal tunnel decompression. It is a 10 to 15 minute operation that changes someone's life. I also massively enjoy fixing distal radius fractures. I think a lot of people think they're really easy operations to do. And it's only when you've seen some of them go a bit wrong, that you're like, yeah, they're not, 
they're not actually that easy. They're, there's some real nuance there and some real skill there to doing them well, especially the kind of smashed ones that require a bit of a bit of hard work. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoy the bread and butter elective stuff. I enjoy Jupitrons. I enjoy um, kind of metacarpal osteotomies. You know, people come in and they're like, my finger doesn't work. My hand is numb. I can't comb my hair or play on my phone. Um, and you do an operation and then they can. But But to be fair, the great bit about hand surgery is you do an operation and then you send them to the hand therapists because you can't be a hand surgeon without hand therapy. It's not a thing. Um, and, and so part of the joy of those kind of bread and butter operations is you're starting someone on the journey to getting to where they want to be, but you're not, it's not this magic thing. Um, and you get to see them progress and do better. And they come back six weeks, 12 weeks, you know, whatever. And, and they're like, the classic one with carpal tunnel is they're like, I can sleep again. I, it doesn't wake me up in the middle of the night anymore. The classic one with, you know, distal radius fractures is when they go, yeah, it's not stiff and swollen anymore. I'm, I'm back to doing my sport or I'm back to playing with my kids or I'm back to, and you're like, yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's the stuff for me. I've, I've done the tumor stuff and the nerve transfer stuff and the tendon transfer stuff and the, all the rest. And that's cool. But my favorites are the, are the, uh, it's a bit like my cooking. My favorite is, is doing the simple stuff really, really well. And I guess on a on a more primitive level, you can really empathize with your patients because you are a sportsman yourself. You've had your injuries. You appreciate what it's like to regain the function of your body uh, to, to go on to do sport. Maybe not the same level, but to be able to do what you love or or to cook. Um, being a new dad, I'm, I'm sure uh, you've already learned or are yet to learn the importance of sleep and and getting a good night's sleep is, is a crucial thing that again, regaining that is just, is just such a beautiful thing for all these patients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is, you know, there's some work going on at the moment with the, the BSSH for like the hand surgery society for the UK about how maybe underappreciated or, or, or under-recognized hand surgery is, um, uh, because it's not hips and it's not knees it's not the big money kind of rock and roll stuff but the thought of losing the use of one of my hands or the, the thought of being less dexterous or the thought of not being able to hold my daughter or play on my phone or cook a meal or turn on a tap or make myself a coffee or whatever you're like I yeah that that is literally life-changing surgery and it's it's okay to admit to yourself that there is some real joy and some real privilege in being able to do that sort of stuff for people hopefully we'll be able to bring it uh bring more light to surface uh during the national undergraduate orthopedic symposium this year this academic yeah, year absolutely. so i guess let's move on to talk a little bit about diversity and you know hammer it out and all the cool projects that you've done in the past so whilst you were president of the British Orthopaedic Trainees Association, you started the Hammer It Out campaign uh, with your colleagues, your, your, your team. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that and what that entailed? Yeah, so, so the process sort of started when I was vice president, actually, and the, the president at the time. One of the big criticisms trainee organisations um, in general were having were that they were these kind of privileged echo chambers 
and we reflected on it and were like yeah you might be right actually so we did a big census where we asked trainees what they wanted to do as consultants and how they're training was and how far they had to travel for teaching all kinds of stuff and when we were designing the census one of the things I said I wanted to put some questions in about was about culture um so so in the British Orthopedic Training Association there isn't a line of succession every year someone has to stand and there's democratic elections so you know at the time I was like this is kind of the hill I want to die on I'm going to stand for election for president on the basis that I think there's something not right about our culture and everyone was like sure like if that's the fight you want to pick it's not going to be a popular one but cool let's do that sounds Um, like a sounds like an uphill battle really yeah and it is and that's to be expected like changing culture is not easy and highlighting stuff that you are part of right part of part of the work we've done is um, destigmatizing and trying to take away the blame while simultaneously being like, yeah, you are, you know, you, you hear words like complicit, but, you know, you have to admit that you are part of a fundamentally hierarchical, patriarchal, slightly toxic culture. You, you just are because we are because it is. But yeah, so we we did this census and the data came back showing that things were about as toxic as everyone kind of deep down knew they were. And we presented it and everyone lost their minds. And that was the launch of the Hammered Out campaign. And, and I made as much noise as I could in the press, in the medical press. Um, and then we started the work of trying to raise awareness, trying to educate people, trying to advocate for change, trying to amplify the voices of people who maybe didn't feel like they had voices. Um you know, and it's evolved as the years have gone on, because one of the things that happened within probably the first year, 18 months of my work was loads of other specialties kind of came out of the woodwork and said, yeah, this is just like ENT and neurosurgery and cardiothoracics. And then suddenly it was like, yeah, this is just like anesthesia and medicine and pediatrics and radiology. And then suddenly people kind of were contacting me from around the world going, yeah, we're the same in Canada and Mexico and the United States. And you're like, what have I done? Like this, this was meant to be my like one year, 18 month passion project. And instead I've started a movement Um, uh, and it's sort of evolved as, as I'd always dreamed it would, because the whole point of a culture change program is that it is this dynamic iterative process you can't just go, we have gone from point A to point B, job done, because that's not how humanity works. It's about recognizing that the moment you change things, new things will declare themselves. So the moment you flatten the hierarchy a bit, for example, you're going to have loads more people speaking up about loads more stuff. The moment you normalize sharing awful experiences, the more people are going to share with you their awful experiences. Um the more you empower people who felt that they didn't have a voice, the more lived experiences that you are not aware of because they're not yours come to life. And so as the world has moved on and the, you know, the campaigns have done their job, so different and other experiences and issues have raised, have raised their, their ugly head. And I'm in a, a privileged position to both have some power and a platform to either help 
with that change or to amplify and support others in in doing that and it's you know it it's been a bonkers ride it started in 2015 it's you know nearly 2022 now uh and i have been lucky enough to talk around the world and and work with all kinds of people basically with the same shared goal which is we're never going to stop everyone from being an asshole all the time but we can probably be a lot better than we are and and I think that's probably why it's been as successful as it is. Is previous attempts at changing culture have been quite puritanical. Um, you must never do this ever, or else zero tolerance. Um, and they've often been quite blame related. And if you do do it, you're for the high jump, zero tolerance. Um, and that's it's not how the real world works. Um, and we know that now from like a bunch of studies. Um, so, you know, the work is ongoing and I'm still working with loads of different organisations in this country and and abroad with the goal of changing healthcare, making it more diverse, more inclusive and less toxic generally. And and that's probably going to be part of my life's work because we know that that kind of culture change can never stop um, because the moment you stop we tend to slide back to baseline and baseline is white male privilege and colonialism and hierarchy and all that other stuff that we know is it's just bad bad for the profession bad for patients just just generally toxic so, so that actually leads me on to my next question perfectly. So, you know, we all talk about what we need. We need change. We talk about when, when do we need it? We need it now. You've spoken a bit about the how, and, you know, I strongly believe that you, your colleagues are part of the how, how the culture is changing. And the listeners of this podcast, the next generation of orthopedic surgeons is part of the how. But I think the question we don't really ask is why? Why is diversity important? Why can't the medical sphere, the orthopedic gang remain homogenous that why you know that typically stereotypically white old man operating on your hip your knee your shoulder whatever it is why, why, why is that causing a negative impact both for patients and uh, people working in the nhs i mean the simple answer is because it makes it makes it a really shitty place to work unless you're one of those people you know being being other is not a nice a nice experience but actually, there's there's a much more nuanced answer, as you might imagine. And, and what it comes down to is we know that diversity of both characteristics and of thought is better for patients. You get better outcomes, not only because diversity of characteristics and thought means that you are able to innovate and you don't stagnate, but also it means that your, your team, your workforce are representative of the people you're serving they are able to identify with those lived experiences they are able to highlight uh inequities and, and privilege where you may not see it and so we know from both healthcare and from like private industry that the more diverse your team is the better it does uh in terms of outcomes in terms of money in terms of recruitment and retention we just know that to be the case and what's interesting is when you look at some of the other kind of more toxic stuff we know that those behaviors 
are the opposite. We know that if you uh, encourage a kind of homogenous, othering, uh, harassment and discrimination type environment, we know that those behaviours will reduce the quality of work done by both the people experiencing those negative behaviours and also the people around those negative behaviours. You know, bullying costs the NHS £2.4 billion a year in mistakes, complaints, sick days, all the rest. So, so fundamentally, the, the real question is, why would anyone be against it? What are they so afraid of? Why does it scare them so much? Um, and, that, and that's it. A, a diverse and inclusive workforce is better for patients. It's better for us. It means that they do better. It means that the health service do better. We make fewer mistakes. We have better ideas. We go home happier and come into work with a bit more skip in our step. It means that we have a workforce that is representative of our population. It means that we don't miss out on some of the most amazing human beings because they don't look or sound like us or because of who they love. Um, and I hope, I, I look forward to the day where we look back on questions like that and we're like, what a weird question to ask. It's, you know, it's like asking, why don't we just put holes in the bottom of all of our boats you know it's just well it's obvious why, why do we wear seatbelts yeah and, and what's interesting is you know the seatbelt I, I when I do some of my keynotes I talk a lot about kind of seatbelts and drink driving and there are people alive today who like my parents who will remember vividly the narratives around that at the time so the advertising campaign to get people to wear seatbelts was because um wearing a seatbelt was seen as this sort of weak uh, effeminate thing to do like real men don't wear seatbelts and it took a generation and legislation change and marketing to explain to people that that wasn't the case drink driving you know 30 years ago it was acceptable to have one for the road it was the done thing you, you got a bit pissed and then you drove home now it's not that drink driving has stopped of course it hasn't but it is the exception, not the rule. It is seen as socially unacceptable. Um, people have this kind of societal low threshold for it. And also it is societally okay now, but if someone saw you reaching for your car keys after a couple of pints, someone might say, uh, sorry, sir, we, we don't know each other, but I, I wonder if I could call you a cab or get you an Uber. You know, um, maybe you're not safe to drive home. They're not going to beat you with a stick. They're not going to call the police. But again, that took years, years and years and years to convince people that it was a bad idea because, and again, my parents talk about this, the, the narrative around the dinner table was, well, I've never had a crash. I don't know anyone who's had a car crash. I've been having a bottle or two of wine with dinner every night and driving home and never had a single problem. And anyway, I'm a very good driver and I'm a professional and I'm very smart and blah, 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 blah. And you hear the same narrative from our colleagues. I don't see why I have to change. Our unit's great. We do really well. We get great outcomes. And you're like, you're fundamentally wrong. And, and here's the evidence, but also here are some more human reasons, like, like improving outcomes, like money, like burnout, like recruitment and retention. Um, and it takes time to change people's minds. It really does. It takes, it takes a generation to change 
to change beliefs, to change, to, to tweak core values. Um, yeah. And, and what can medical students do? You know, how, how do we stop ourselves from just being passive observers and being absorbed into that group of people that will become, you know, what we'd refer to now as the dinosaurs who still uh, don't think diversity is important in the NHS? I mean, it's a big ask, but I would ask medical students to, to kind of live their values. Um, there is that thing about what you permit, you promote. And I think medical students now more than ever actually have recognized, especially with the recent pandemic and everything else, have recognized actually how much power they have. Um, that you are not these kind of passive bystanders and that you that there are ways and means you can be a, a, a you know an effective bystander when you see this stuff. And it might mean that you, you know, delegate calling out to someone else. And it might mean that actually all you do is just distract them and stop whatever awfulness you see going on. And it might be that you kind of delay and go home and have a bit of a think and a reflect and you speak to some people. And it might be that actually you do call it out and go, I'm, I'm really sorry, that's, that's not acceptable. And it might be that you do a micro affirmation instead. You know, you might, you might throw back a, a compliment, you know, that whole kind of idea of when they go low, we go high. But, but part of, of medical students being part of this advocacy changes I, I put it to the medical students that they're building the world they want to live in. And so it's not easy. I'm not saying that it's going to be a doddle. You have to actively every day live your values. And that doesn't mean being one of these like hyper woke cancel culture types. It means challenging stuff that is fundamentally wrong and doing it in a way that is respectful and doing it because you know that people have your back. And that's not easy but it's what we need. You know, I was recently called a snowflake on Twitter. And one of my friends said, yeah, but you have enough snowflakes and you've got an avalanche. And I was like, oh, I like that. We saw that in the pandemic, you know, medical students were like, this is how we're being treated. This is what we expect. This is, this is, what we deserve and these are the behaviors that we are going to we're going to model these behaviors so we would ask you to do the same and it worked you are you are no no less of a of a member of the team just because you're a medical student you are just like me you're just slightly younger and in many medical students cases not slightly younger um so i would ask medical students to live their values and to collaborate and to try and use what privilege they do have to support and amplify others. And all of a sudden you will see that you are building a health service you wanna work in. And you know what, you're absolutely right. And you do have to utilize that privilege and, and be able to identify that you do hold a certain privilege. I, I think being a medical student itself is you know, your, your primary privilege, but then for myself, uh, I'm a white heterosexual male. Fine, I emigrated here when I was seven, but I do speak of a nice RP accent, uh, and I, I've, I've, I've identified that. Um, but one of the best pieces of advice I think you've ever given me, I asked you, you know, this question personally a few years back, and you said you introduced me to this idea of having a, a, a coffee chat, and it's. Uh, yeah. uh, do you want? Do you want to just quickly just tell the listeners uh, what what that concept is? Yeah, so 
so there's been some great work that's come out of this university in the States called Vanderbilt University. And, and what they've realized is that within any kind of work environment, which is what we do, right, as, as doctors or healthcare providers, we, we work in healthcare, that basically a very small proportion of the workforce will take up a large proportion of your time. And you probably know that in your friendship group, in your year group, there'll be like those few people who are always causing trouble, you know, and I'm sure if you ask any medical student, which three people in your university are going to end up getting fitness to practice, you can point a finger and be like, those people. Um, and what Vanderbilt said was, most people um, have no problems. They carry on in life. And if there is an issue, um, the general feedback one experiences during your life checks and balances that, right? Um, you say fuck on a ward round you are then mortified but someone goes mike you said you said something on a ward round and you go yeah i oh my god and that's it and that's all that needs to be said and you don't do it again and you learn and you move on however the model vanderbilt have is for uh what they call an unprofessional incident and you can get into the nitty-gritty about what that means but for example um I will use myself as an example here because it means no one else gets in trouble. So say I'm in an operating theatre and I drop something and the scrub nurse bends to pick it up and I say, while you're down there, and do a little cheeky eyebrow wiggle. So Vanderbilt say that that kind of behaviour mandates a informal cup of coffee conversation. So that means that someone, either that person I said it to, so the nurse, or if she doesn't feel confident, or he doesn't feel confident and they um, they delegate it to someone else and they say, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, Simon said this thing to me, could you speak to them? So someone says, Simon, can we go have a cup of coffee? And it is a reflective conversation. Simon, this is what you said, this is how it made me feel, or this is how it made them feel. How, how you know, what's it like being on the receiving end of you? What, what do you think that that behavior had an effect on that cup of coffee conversation is a bit like telling someone they have food in their teeth like you're both finding it kind of awkward but generally you want to know if you've been a knob you you do want to know you might not like it you might eye roll and get defensive but their evidence suggests that most people on the basis of that single intervention will change their behavior for ever however say that the pattern persists um, it turns out that I make inappropriate comments in every list. So you get what's called an awareness intervention. So that may be the same person having a conversation with me. It may be um, someone a bit more senior, but it's in an office. You know, there's an email trail. Uh, it's no longer an informal cup of coffee. It's a formal, uh, Simon, we need to talk about your behavior in operating theaters. Say I persist again. Then you have what's called a guided intervention by authority. In other words, um, someone important sits me down and goes, Mr. Fleming, you've had an informal cup of coffee conversation. You've had a formal awareness intervention. You need to understand now that I'm telling you these behaviors need to stop. We've offered you support. We've offered you courses. We've offered you this, that, and the other. But you need to understand that if these behaviors do not stop, there will be significant consequences. And then the tip of that pyramid is what's called a disciplinary intervention. So that is, you know, GMC referral, fitness to practice, you get expelled, whatever. Now, within their model, they of course say that there are certain behaviors that skip some of those steps. So instead of me making a 
terrible joke that makes me fundamentally a bit sexist and probably a bit harassmenty, which is illegal. Say instead, I am um, I pat a member of staff on the bottom and tell them that if they want a signature in their logbook, they can come and find me later. I don't get a cup of coffee conversation. By definition, that sort of behavior skips one or even two levels, right? Um, say, as has happened in hospitals in recent memory, I punch someone, right? Yeah, we're going straight to disciplinary intervention. Now, that doesn't mean that um, I, as the person who hit someone, don't still get support because I may need whatever, debriefing, mental health care, whatever. But you skip certain steps. If you hit someone, you don't get a cup of coffee conversation. Similarly, what you don't want is to say, oh, this is the 12th time I've had to buy Simon Fleming a coffee. It's like, no. What you need is a system of transparent accountability whereby you have a series of escalations where it's not zero to 60. You don't go from like, you know, you, you say one bad thing and suddenly you're expelled. Um, it gives the opportunity for change. It gives the opportunity for learning rather than the satisfaction of just blaming someone and moving on with your day. Um, it also means that if it comes to say expelling someone or sending them to the GMC, there is a clear progression of behavior. There is a clear demonstration that it wasn't like they made a mistake, that they, you know, that they failed to reflect on. It's they made recurrent behavioral choices such that they are not demonstrating any remorse or any personal growth. And again, we know that you probably don't want those people in your team. And, and that's just the nature of the beast. But the cup of coffee conversation is really, really powerful um, because it's such an innocuous thing, but the evidence suggests that on the basis of me taking someone for a cup of coffee and going, can I just let you know about a thing you said in the MDT today and how that made me feel, even though they might be mortified and call me a snowflake and blah, 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 blah. Chances are they will change, change their behaviors on the basis of that one conversation. So just so that the listeners are aware, being slightly crass and flirting with the border is not the best way to get a free coffee working in a hospital. Be nice Absolutely. on placement, uh, get involved, get stuck in, and I'm sure you'll get a free coffee that way instead. Yeah, I buy, it's hilarious, right? So I buy I buy all of the kind of junior people coffees and all the rest. But what's, what's funny is I, I gave this talk um, in another region uh, maybe two years ago now, and one of the quite senior surgeons there said the biggest problem he has now is he's now terrified whenever anyone offers to buy him a coffee because he's worried they're going to tell him that he's been an asshole at work and you're like well yeah okay fine if that's the worst thing that happens um but no it's it's the cup of coffee model is about an an informal chat where you allow them a psychological safe space so you're not you know telling them off in a corridor you're not summoning them with an email because it's that, you know, the food in the teeth conversation of, yeah. Mike, I don't know if you know, but you did this thing. Yeah. And you know what? Hey, you know, even if you are getting slightly told off, being told, you know, you were slightly inappropriate, at least the coffee makes it easier to swallow that news. Yeah. 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 Well, no, but that is part of it is it's about creating a psychological safe space because you are meant to feel a bit uncomfortable. That's part of it. 
you are meant to be like, oh no. And and again, to be clear, there are certain behaviors where you, you know, one of my friends um, who's a program director in the north of England talks about the second one being a, a no cup of coffee for you conversation. Because yeah, like the first, that first level is meant to be for you, you know, you've you've done something stupid and and you know you've you've crossed a line and you probably just need someone to let you know. But there are times when, yeah, you should feel uncomfortable. It it should make you not feel good because you've potentially discriminated against someone or harassed someone or bullied someone or been sexist, racist, homophobic, whatever. Yeah, you know what? It's it's you're not meant to enjoy this experience. You are meant to be like, oh no. And that's that's okay too. It is not you can you can be respectful and still make someone uncomfortable and unhappy. And that's, that's okay. Not every experience is meant to be a joyous one. Simon, thank you very much for that advice. Before we wrap up, we have a little lasting segment for each episode where a trainee or an orthopedic consultant comes on. And that is, we ask the, the guest, if there were a surgical instrument, what would they be? So I open that question to yourself. So I was thinking about this. And I guess as an orthopod, right, the most obvious thing you you think of is like a hammer. So I started thinking oh, I'd be a hammer. I was like, I'm a hand surgeon. So we have like teeny tiny hammers. We call them toffee hammers. And then actually recently as a, as a hand surgeon, for me, my my bit of kit of choice are my loops, um, which if you don't know what they are, are these little kind of mini binocular things you wear. And they just changed my world. I bought a really cheap and cheerful pair of like dental loops when I was very, very junior. And you literally see the world in a different light. And I think anything that lets you see more, anything that gives you a little bit of clarity in life, you're winning. So if I could be anything, I'd be a pair of loops. See, now we know why you're so such a big fan of Dr. Glamour, Glaucom Flecken. It's, it's yeah. all about seeing the world and, and, I'm sure, eyes. and I'm sure for him, it's all about, you know, feeling the world of his hands and, and operating exactly. so that, you know, the two of you have a symbiotic relationship. Simon, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's awesome. been a pleasure. OSNAP is the official podcast of the British Orthopaedic Medical Students Association. However, all thoughts, ideas and shitty dad jokes are our own and they are not necessarily representative of the organisation. If you do have any concerns about any content discussed, please do reach out to us. Please, for the love of God, don't sue us. <laughs> I don't care if Monday's blue, Tuesday's grey and